thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we're going to continue in chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What we said last time by way of summary, we talked about the beginning, the meaning of the beginning. It doesn't only mean temporal beginning, but the word Bereshit in the Hebrew would mean also in the first or in the head, which means it was interpreted by Origen and other church fathers to also mean in Christ, in the word of God, all this created was happened in Saint, Saint Paul will use this later to say that everything was created in him, through him, and by him, and for him, for, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there is going to be a moral component to all of this when we get to the creation of Adam and Eve, but I do like to remind you that when we say, when St. Paul says that everything was created for him, that includes you. You were created for Christ. For Christ. And particularly in baptism. So in baptism, Christ purchased you. You, you. you and I were created slaves of Satan because we had original sin in our soul. And Christ paid the price for our freedom from sin. So anytime you, you're, you're, dialogue, you have, you're entering into a dialogue with a woman who is co- contemplating, say, abortion, and she says, this is my body... If she's of a, if she's of a, if she's Catholic, you could reply back to her and say, "No, it's not. It's not your body. It's Christ's. He paid for it." We 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 have a very uh, hedonistic view of our own body. We think it's ours. I own it. It's my body. My iPod. My iPhone. My this. My that. Well, it's not. None of it is uh, mine. All of it is really Christ's. Christ paid the price for our salvation. He, according to the covenant, says, I claimed you for me. I paid the price for you. So therefore, your body, that's why St. Paul says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He didn't mean by that to say that we are so grandiose and beautiful on our own that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He meant you're the new creation that Christ effected on the cross, and as a result... Because of His Word and His power and His grace in your soul, you have now become a new creation and the Holy Spirit dwells in you because of Christ. You are the work of Christ. Okay, and if we can keep that, if we can keep that, we will better understand, in our minds, we will better understand what the church means by the human dignity. The dignity of every human being. The church does not see the dignity of every human being objectively as a separate thing from Christ. 
the church sees the dignity of every human being precisely in the salvific power of the, of the cross. The dignity of human being is rooted, number one, in the fact that we are made in the image of God, but number two, that we are remade in the image of the Son of God through His cross. That is why it is so important for us to understand the anthropological nature, the anthropological argument that the church makes on our behalf. That is why every human being is absolutely a holy creation in baptism and must be preserved as such. So, that's what we, we talked about at the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And again, when you see heavens and the earth, do not ascribe to this expression a literalistic interpretation. Heavens and then the planet earth. Do not move away from thinking that the author meant... In the beginning, God created the cosmos and the earth. This is an expression, the way you would say, um, you know, give me a break, or drink the Kool-Aid, or any of those wonderful expressions we have in this country. This is just one of those expressions to mean the universe. So read it as, in the beginning, God created the universe. That's all that is implied. There's no implication here to say specifically all of the cosmos and then earth in this order. Okay? To the ancient, the, the cosmos was made of what? Earth, the heavens, and the underground. That's it. So therefore, in their, in their understanding of things, to say everything that exists in the universe, they'll say the heavens and the earth. That's it. Is that clear for everyone? Okay. That's the cultural background that we lack so because we lack that cultural bracket, what do we do? Implicitly, we substitute our own. Right? Our own is scientific, so we plug that in and we try to then make, draw conclusions which really don't apply to the text. In the beginning, God created the universe. Okay? That's what this ver first verse means, and we spent quite a bit of time on it last time. Now, the earth was without form and void. Now, again, be careful... They, the, the, the author does not necessarily imply that only the earth, the planet earth, was void and without form. But Mars was well formed. Or Jupiter was well formed. Or the stars were well formed. Keep in mind the model. The model is what? Earth, the heavenly dome, and the underworld. So what is it really saying when you keep it in that context? It's saying... Matter was yet not formed. The actual Hebrew expression here is tehom and behom, chaotic, the chaos. This is very important because what he's saying is that in the beginning, God created the cosmos. Okay, that's cool. That indicates that God is the author of everything. Second statement, the everything was a big mess. That's what he's saying. Void and without form. Chaos reigned. So stop and think about that for a second. Most of the time, read scripture like read a newspaper. We just, you know, keep reading along. Because we're, we know the story, right? We know the ending. We know how it ends. We know everything about it. So we're so used to it, we just don't see the apparent contradictions. Didn't I just say God created everything? Didn't I say that? Verse 1. 
How come everything's chaotic? I mean, if God is creating, would you expect everything to fall in place? Right? God creates. So, you know, you can think of Mary Poppins cleaning the room, right? She gets there, it's a mess, and then she flicks her fingers. If you've seen the movie, Mary Poppins, if you have kids, you've seen the movie about 22 times, depending on how many kids you have. Right? If you haven't seen Mary Poppins, you ought to see Mary Poppins. Anyhow, she's this, uh, this um, nanny with magical powers. So she gets into this room, and it's messy, and she flicks her finger, and everything, everything is, you know, all the socks are joined together, and the shirts are folded, and everything fits in the drawers, and all the drawers close, and three minutes later, the room is spick and span. So we have sort of a Mary Poppins idea of God in our head. God says something, and everything is right on. Spick and span, spot on. Everything is perfect. Everything is ordered. What's this business of void and without form? What is it? So, you know, God is going to his R&D lab and trying different things. And then, whoops, you know, we missed the Trinity saying to it, you know, among themselves, whoops, that doesn't work. All right, scrap that one. Let's try again. Universe version 1.1. Is that what's going on? Why is it that God creates things that, that is without form and void? So void is a wrong word. I mean, let me, let me correct that. It, it's, it's misleading. You know what void means? If you really think about that word and void, you have earth, which is supposed to be solid, Right? It's without form, so it's not a, it's not a ball, it's, it has no form, and it's void. What is it? Be careful with the words. The indication here is that the state of the universe begins in chaotic fashion. It's chaotic. There's no order to it. God creates it this way. Isn't that weird? Why is God creating the universe in this fashion? I mean, if we were God, and thank God we're not God, but if we were God, it would be starting something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? The earth was beautiful, and the heavens were orderly. Wouldn't that be a better beginning? Wouldn't it make more sense to feel more comfortable? This is the right idea of God. God should work this way. Why isn't He working this way? Do you understand the problem? you got to read scripture this way. You have to argue with God. The way Jacob fought with the angel, you need to argue with God. What's going on here? I don't understand this. Why are you doing it this way? And then you ask your garden angel to fill you in. And then God gives you the graces God had for you, prepared for you, if you could just enter into dialogue with Him and take Him seriously. So why do you think he did it this way? Why does he start with something that is chaotic? So incidentally, on a scientific side, see why scripture accords best with our current understanding of the standard model, the the Big Bang theory? Big Bang tells us when everything started, it was completely chaotic. Right? It accords well with that. I just want to point out to you. It doesn't really accord well with a creationist model. 
the creations model would have said something like, you know, the earth was beautiful and the universe was orderly, everything was in place, and it doesn't say that. I'll come back to this question. Just I want you to ponder this for a little while. We'll come back to it. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. Okay, what deep? Do you notice the author introduces this deep as if it's something you should know? He doesn't say, and there was a deep, and darkness was upon it. Just says, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. What deep? What is this deep? That's a deep question. I mean, what is this deep? You could see that in the mind of the human author, there is already a standard model that he assumes his readers or his hearers know about. doesn't have to explain it. You get it? It's assumed you know what that deep is. Well, most of us don't these days. First, darkness. Darkness, in this specific context, reinforces the notion of chaos. So not only were things chaotic, but there was no light in them. No light in them. So light hasn't yet appeared. Okay? And the deep is, of course, that area that separates earth from the firmament, the dome. So he's basically telling us that not only was earth void and without form, chaos was on earth, but away outside from earth, you couldn't even see anything. It was completely dark. Okay, again, what was God up to? Was he trying to save energy? You know, we'll flick the lights later because now we're not ready. We don't wanna... Why is there darkness? Ah, now you're, you're, you're effectively, so what Leila said is that it sounds like it's us before baptism. Now you're effectively and correctly reading it on a moral level. Whatever applies to the universe applies to us, absolutely. But that's not the literal sense, right? That's the moral sense, we're going to get to that. There is in this, in these two first verses a profound lesson on the ways of God. Remember, what did we say the universe was? What's the purpose of the universe? What is it? It's a house of God. It's a temple. It's a temple. Take away, throw away your scientific view, replace it with a liturgical view. You've got to do that if you are to understand this text in its context. These the writer is not interested in teaching us science. It's not the purpose of this text. The purpose is to tell us something about what God is up to. It is, he's not really interested in telling us how He's doing it. He's really interested in telling us what is God doing. Because He wants us to get into a proper relationship with God. That's His purpose. Let me tell you about God. Let me tell you who He is through His works. So the purpose is to discover who God is by meditating on what God is doing. You've got to put yourself in this context. God is about to create a temple. The whole universe is a temple where everyone worships God. 
And he starts by creating his temple in a really odd sort of way. It's dark, it's chaotic, and it's void. Alright? First assertion. First assertion, which is very important for the people of, the, of that epoch. That the author is stressing the fact that primordial matter, primordial matter did not exist apart from God. Why? Because for the culture of the time, most of the gods created stuff by fashioning what was pre-existing. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, most of these um, um, mythologies stated that God, the gods created, but using the stuff that existed already. You understand? So the first thing he does is to correct this view by saying, look, take away all the structures and take away everything that you can see with a form. Take that all away. Guess what? The stuff that is left is Tehom and Behom. Chaotic. God created even that. Nothing escapes God's creative power. Nothing at all. What's more, the tone of the text is natural. The tone of the text is natural. The author is not saying, in the beginning, God created the gods. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was imbued with powerful magical forces. There's none of that. Nature is completely stripped from any spiritual or magical forces. None of that. You understand? So the immediate implication for his time was to clearly direct people's attention to who God is. God is not a demiurge. He's not a God that exists or coexists with eternal matter. No. He is wholly different. He is completely remote from anything we know, anything material. He precedes all of this, and he is the author of it all. Nothing escapes God's power, God's creative power. Everything comes to us from God. What is the practical conclusion for all of us, based on what I just told you? None of you should be looking at your horoscope. If you are, by the way, you're committing a sin. Just letting you know. Anyone who actually reads his or her horoscope is committing a sin. It's a sin of idolatry. Idolatry. What does that mean, idolatry? It means you are worshipping other gods or you're worshipping the true God the wrong way. Both of, both of these fall under idolatry. And it violates the first commandment. Thou shalt not have any other God but me. Okay? So if you're doing it, stop. <laughs> Go to confession. Confess it. And never do it again. Alright? Never do it again. Anyone who thinks that somehow balls of fire... 50 billion light years away, influence your decision today, has got to be somehow irrational. All right? 
Now, what is Christ? He is the Word of God. What is Word in Greek? You should know that. Logos. What is the derivative of Logos? Logical. Logical. Reasonable. That's why reason is such a prized quality of a human being. Because this is what makes us in the image of the Word of God. When we use our reason. Therefore, faith must always be reasonable. Somebody comes to you and says, you drink a glass of broccoli juice every day for six years and you'll be able to fly. If you believe this person, you're not logical, are you? And we human beings, because of original sin, have an attraction to something that is not logical. We want to run away from logic. How do I know that? How many of you go home after a good day of work, sit down and start doing some math just for fun. Why do you think that? Why, why do you think this is the case? Because most of us don't want to exercise our reason to its fullest capacity. It tires us. It's pulling us away from our fallen nature. So, The earth was without form and, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now, this is material world. But is the universe only material? There is a second part to this verse. I haven't given you the full picture of the universe, have I now, so far, as far as verse 2 is concerned. What is the second part of that verse? And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of of the waters. Again, no introduction to waters. It just, it's there. He doesn't tell us, and there was water here and there and over, and over there. No, no. Waters. Right? The deep waters are synonymous. It's the place from which the chaos comes out. It is the, the place from which all that is opposite to Israel will come back. You remember in the study of Revelation, the sea is always a symbol for the Gentile nations. Monsters come out of the sea. The sea is, has always been seen as that place which is chaotic, which is not orderly, which cannot be controlled, and has hidden things in it that threaten the life of those who live on earth, most of whom didn't know how to swim to begin with. Right? That was a little factor in there. They didn't have a chance to go on vacation on the beach and then swim, but also seafaring was not what it is today. So the sea was always seen as a symbol, a representation of all that is threatening. But look what he says. He doesn't say, and then the waters was there and we had all these problems in it. No. The Spirit was, the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Was moving, moving or overshadowing the face of the waters. There are effectively three overshadowing action by the Spirit. Three. In Scripture. The first one is here as a prelude to the, crea to the creation. The second one is when the Spirit came upon the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus and got Moses out signaling the beginning of the 
priesthood, the Jewish priesthood in action. Effectively, the tabernacle was sanctified, the tent of the meeting was sanctified, and the priestly sacrifice could begin, symbolizing the new creation. And the third time was when the Spirit came upon Our Lady. Every time signaling a new creation, a new order. Now, the full picture of the temple of God has what? It has chaos. Physically, it is still chaotic. It has no shape. It has no form. But the Spirit is moving over the face of the waters. <clears throat> Incidentally, for those of you who do come to the Maronite liturgy, and I don't think it's the only one, but at least in the Maronite liturgy, you will see the priest fluttering his hands over the species placed on the altar. That fluttering of the hands represents the spirit moving over the face of the waters. It represents the, the new creation. So every time we have Mass, it is what? It's a new creation. All right. The temple of God isn't just the physical order. The universe, as we know it, isn't just what we see. The universe is filled with what? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has never left the universe. Hasn't abandoned the universe. What is therefore the universe with that Spirit present in it? It points to what? It points to the Temple of Jerusalem, which is a micro-universe when the Holy Spirit will descend and abide in the Holy of Holies. The Shekinah, Al-Sakinah, the presence of God. That's why for the Jews and all the ancients, by the way, the temple was a micro-universe. And the universe was a macro-temple. And what is the church today? The same thing. We have the abiding presence of the Spirit in the church. So this harkens to that. You can't judge the universe based on what you see, feel, sense, taste, and hear. Because you do not see the Spirit that directs everything. Likewise, you cannot judge the church based on what you hear, see, feel, uh, feel and taste. Because you do not see the Spirit that animates the church. This is not an account, an orderly account of a material creation. We become so materialistic that we miss this verse very easily. We're only focused on, well, does this, fit, you know, does this fit with our current understanding of creation from a scientific point of view? This is such a... I mean, it's important, don't get me wrong, but it's minor. It's a minor truth in the grand scheme of things. This is telling us what God is doing in the world, in the universe, by creating a place where we can worship. But He's saying right away, do not rely on appearances. If you do, you will be deceived. I do not work this way. I am not a magician. I'm not a god that scratches where it itch simply because you want me to scratch where it itches. I'm far more greater than that. And I have plans that are so much greater than anything you could ever imagine for you. But you have to follow me. And I will lead you to the truth and the truth will set you free. That's His plan for you. The other point I want to bring out to your attention is that in a very fundamental way, I'm going to show you this as we go through Scripture, 
randomness, randomness is a tool that God uses to express His will. Oftentimes in a debate between science and uh, faith and religion, there's this false dichotomy. So that if you believe in randomness, you cannot believe in God. And if you believe in God, you cannot believe in randomness. This is silly. It doesn't fit scripture whatsoever. Randomness is a tool through which God's will is made. Because He's greater than randomness. And we see it here. It's chaotic. It's void. It looks like nothing. But God has already a plan animated through His Spirit that through this chaos and randomness, order will come forth. Order will come forth. Without violating the random process. It is random. You can have, an, you can have a process completely random yet expresses God's will. Alright. And God said, Let there be light. Fiat lux, in the Latin. And I remember this because when I was in France, I was studying, I, was, I had English as my second language, and I didn't like English at all because I didn't know what to do with this thing. I never thought I would ever use it, but I'm studying it. So they gave us a composition, Fiat lux, taken from the Herald Tribune. And I couldn't read really English, I could just decipher a couple of words. So I'm trying to understand, what is this title? So I thought, Fiat, huh, yeah, that's the car company. Lux, L-U-X, just closure to luxury. So it's probably about luxurious cars made by Fiat. <laughs> oh boy, was I in for a surprise. <laughs> Let there be light. It had nothing to do with anything I thought it had anything to do with. Let there be light. Notice, God said, God said, Let there be light. Right there you have an anthropomorphism. God has no mouth. God doesn't speak like we do. All right? Furthermore, in God there is no time. When we say God said, it implies a time that must have occurred between a thinking process and a speaking process. However minute, you think and then you say something when it's meaningful. Sometimes we do the opposite, and it's not as meaningful as we think it is. We say something and we think about what you just said. It doesn't work really well. So remember, this is just an anthropomorphism. It's a process where we ascribe certain human faculties to God in order to be able to talk meaningfully with God, because really God is beyond our knowledge. We don't have the faculty to understand God. So what do we do? Scripture uses whatever means to tell us what we need to know. Not everything about God, just what we need to know. So God didn't really say, as in I'm saying. The important point is that God didn't do. God didn't, you know, lay electric lines and plan for it and do all that stuff. He just effected His order by bringing it into reality. There's no... In God, there is no distance between a thought and its execution. You understand? In us, there is. That's why we have lots of thoughts. I wish I had, uh, you know, a, a uh, something, whatever that is. But I don't have it. And I could wish as much as I want, 
I still don't have it. Why? Because I'm a creature. By definition of who I am, I can't do that. God can. God can. That's the fundamental difference between God and us. And I want you to really think about that because this is very important. Our biggest problem, our biggest problem, and the point, if I were to summarize the entire study of St. Thomas Aquinas, it'd be one word, creatorhood. Creaturehood. We're creatures. God created us as creatures. We're not the creator. You think it's obvious, but it isn't. We have a lot of problems with this. Ask me why. Because what I said is not obvious. You should be asking me why. Thank you. Simple. I'll give you a very simple example. When a loved one dies, what do we do? Crying is okay. I have no problem with crying. It's part of grief. It's It's a normal emotion. Our Lord himself cried when Lazarus died. So crying is okay. But what else do we do? Pardon? Wish? Question. We question. Right? Why? Why did this happen? Right? We question. Why, why do we question? Have you ever thought about this? Why do we question? Because we want an answer. We want an answer. Okay. Because what? Because you think you're going to die one day. Yes. Pardon? It's not fair. It's not fair. Yes. We don't understand. Lack of faith. Pardon? Questioning God's decisions. Not trusting. Denial. In a fundamental sense, by the way, when we question, we think we are entitled to an answer. We think we have the right to an answer. Right? I'm asking, you should answer me. How come you don't answer me? What are you talking? You're a creature. God says it as much. Does the pot, questions the potter who made it. <laughs> How come you made me this way? I don't like it. My neck is too long. I'm too, I, I don't like that color. Change it. That's how we are with God. That, he is the creator. We are the creatures. What does that mean? He owes us nothing. Fundamentally, God owes us nothing. I mean, once He creates us, out of His love, He owes us sustenance and the things we need to be saved, and He gave us more than that. But in an intrinsic sense, He just owes us nothing. A potter that creates a pot owes that pot nothing at all. He can take that pot and destroy it right now. He has every right to do that. We have none. But we don't want to accept that. What did the serpent say? You shall be. He knew exactly where to strike. And he does it again today. He does it again today. God knows our problem. And so what does he do? He gives us those little tests every day. There are the little annoyances. Somebody who cuts you on the highway, humidity and heat, uh, things not going the way you want today. You wanted to take a train and you missed it, so you're forced to drive. You're talking to somebody who speaks loudly. 
You're in a meeting and somebody uses a pen constantly, clicks on it all the time, he's driving you batty. You're about ready to tear your hair, right? Little annoyances, little annoyances. I'm not talking about big stuff, small little things that happen throughout your day. Small little things. Why do you think these things happen? Because you're, it's a bad day, it's a rotten day? Because that's your lot, that's what's supposed to happen, oh well. Do you, don't you see in those little things the gift of God? Do you see God handing you those gifts? Each one of them is a gift to you. Why is it a gift? Because He's trying to inoculate you. You know how when you have vaccines, you take a little bit of a, of a, of a disease to help you fight a big one? That's what he's doing. He's inoculating you against the temptation of rebellion. So that if you learn to say, praise be to God, thank God for this little annoyance I offered to you. Thank you, Lord. You know me better. You know these areas I need to improve on. And diligently working on them, diligently taking them very, very seriously, working them, trying to really improve in this area, you're becoming Christian. That's why these things happen to you, because God loves you. If He didn't love you, if He, if he wanted to show you His wrath, He'll give you everything you want. Because He knows that's going to lead you straight to hell. The most wretched person on this planet would be, let's say, a guy who's good-looking, very rich, has all the money he wants, everything's going good for him, and he doesn't believe in God. He's the most wretched person on his face. He's, he's got God's wrath on him. Because that man is walking straight down the path that leads to hell. He does not need God. Life is good. Do you understand? Things are not what they appear to be. Oftentimes they're upside down. Oftentimes they're upside down. Remember that. Let there be light. And there was light. Now, when he says there was light, in, in the, in the, as I told you last time, in the conception of the, of the Jews and the ancient, light was not necessarily directed to the sun. Number one, they didn't believe or understand that the moon is simply reflecting the light of the sun. They thought the moon has its own light. Number two, even when it's downcast and covered, you still have light. Number three, dawn and dusk, you've got light before the sun shows up. So... Light is not necessarily related to the sun. And you know what? Scientifically, they're right. 300,000 years into the creation of the universe, the universe cooled down sufficiently for light to shine. There was light. Okay? The perspective here is that God, out of this darkness, brings up light. Isn't that a contradiction? Completely dark, chaotic, and in God brings up light. And that's why when we start our liturgy, what do we do? The first thing we do, we light up those candles. Let there be light. It's a cosmic liturgy. It isn't just about us. It's the whole universe celebrating God and the creation, the creative act of God. Let there be light. There was light. Now, of course, you can see already the 
the parallelism between this, the salvific work of Christ, you know, and, and, and everything else. But I'm just focusing right now on the basics, on the literal sense. Let there be light. So God intervenes in His temple and brings forth light. And God saw that the light was good. All right, here we go. You know, back to the R&D. Whoa, we got it right this time. That's the right frequency. God didn't know it was going to be good. He had to try it first. Why is he saying, and then God saw, saw, said and saw, right? That it was good. Those anthropomorphisms should immediately alert you that the simplistic sense, the naive sense, doesn't apply. God doesn't see the way we see. He doesn't have a pair of eyes the way we do. All right? So obviously, they're trying to communicate something to us that we don't understand. What is the idea behind God saw that it was good? Okay. It is fundamentally a way of stating that God is the judge of creation. Not only does He create, but He's the ultimate judge of what is good and what is not good. By saying that God saw that it was good, we're establishing the meter by which we're going to measure goodness. God is our reference for that which is good. It isn't about an assessment of His own creation for His own purpose. It's a statement that says that God said the light was good. Therefore, all of us know the light is good. It's for us. It's the authority that speaks for us. Alright? So these repetitions of goodness is an affirmation that there is absolutely nothing in the light that has been put, pulled, pulled forth that is evil. Its nature is purely good. Now, let's understand this. Good. What does good mean? In Latin, good and beautiful have the same root. What is beautiful? That which is good. And the good is beautiful. The sense here isn't just a physical sense of fitness. The light was right on. I got the right frequency. Right? There is a sense of fit for a purpose in good. But beyond that, it indicates something deeper. It indicates that this light truly is a representation of what? The Spirit, and ultimately of the Son. I am the light of the world. Alright? I am the light of the world. The light is good because it is a representation of the face of Jesus Christ. That's why we are attracted to the light. And that's why the, begin, the first chapter of the Gospel of St. John is such an indictment against fallen humanity. Because if you go back and read this chapter in the Gospel of St. John, it says the following. Um, Matthew, Mark, here we go. The first chapter. In the beginning was the Word. Okay. Okay, yeah. Verse 6. I'm sorry. Verse... Uh, Verse 5, 
The light shines in the darkness. See how he refers back to this, these verses we're talking about. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he continues, verse verse 8, speaking of John, He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. And then he adds, He came to his own, verse 11, and his own people received him not. And his own people received him not. They were unable to receive the light. So the purpose of this light and goodness is to tell us it's completely natural, it's completely rational, it is intrinsically good, but it represents also something about the goodness of God. And it teaches us not to look at physical elements just as a physical manifestation. What is light? A series of photons. Just a photon beam. Really? That's all? See how this is materialistic? Light is more than this. Light is a mirror reflecting the light of the world. Jesus Christ. We've got to reclaim this liturgical view of the universe if we are to preserve our faith. We cannot be like, you know, cut in two, schizophrenic. When we come to the church, yeah, we use all this liturgical you know, language, and we go out there, we back to our materialistic view. The universe is full of wonders because the universe is wonderful because it points to the one who is truly wonderful, Jesus Christ. And God separated the light from the darkness. All right. Notice, first God creates something, which is light, and then there is order. Creation and order. Separation here indicates order. It is not separation as in divorce. You understand? It is clear delineation of concepts that, that orders things. Right? What is understanding? If you were to define understanding, what is understanding? Understanding is the proper ordering of things. That's one of the operational definition of understanding. It's the proper ordering of things. You understand something when you can explain what it's made of or how to do it. Well, first you do this, and then you turn that gizmo this way, and you, you, you understand it. Why? You've ordered it right. Why are we so attracted to puzzles? If you think about it, it's such an absurd um, occupation. Right? You got what? You got pieces of a picture. You know what a piece, picture is, and you spend hours, countless hours, putting that picture together. For goodness sake, go buy the picture. <laughs> Why are we spending so many hours doing this? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's your puzzle. It was formless and void and darkness. The Spirit hovered over it, and light came, and order came. That's why we are creatures who are made to point to that which is rational. We want and we like and we enjoy creating order out of chaos because we're made this way because we're called to be children of God. That's why we like puzzles. I never thought I was talking about puzzles in Bible study, but here it is. 
So there is this separation between light and darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. So once he separates, what does he do? He gives names. The power he shares with us. We can name things. In order to understand things, we name them. Right? We name them. We're really good at creating new names constantly, new concepts. Right? And we delight in that. Especially when you can take two things and kind of clobber them together and make a new word out of it. We like that. Why? Because we have the spark of creation, of creativity that God gave us. We like giving an animal a name that is, appro- uh, that is fitting. We enjoy that. Right? There's a guy who had a dog. He called him the dog. And he had a cat. He called it the cat. I mean, if you think about it, the dog and the cat are just strings, like any other string. But somehow we did, we're disappointed. Aren't we? We feel something is missing. Why? I mean, the cat and the dog will never survive past their life here on earth. They die, everything dies. There's nothing left of them. Right? They're created for our enjoyment, to teach us something about God's goodness. Right? Why are we so disappointed when we, you know, what, because of this? There's this creative power in us. If somebody has a company, typically you'll spend a lot of time thinking about a name for that company. About anything. Your children. Read books about the names. Right? How many of you na- know people who would go to a book, randomly open it up, put a finger on it, and that's the name? Do <laughs> you know anybody does that? We cherish the names. Right? Why? Because of this. Because of this creative spark in us. We are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. So God gave names to these things. Light was called day, and the darkness He called night. Again, see it in its liturgical setting. Don't see it in its physical structure. Wait a minute. How could there be a day and a night before there is the sun? Right? This is how we would think. Right? The day and the night are just revolution of earth around the sun. Are they? This text is saying something much deeper than that. This text is saying intrinsically the order in the universe. Not only the order, but the laws that govern the universe are the expression of God's will. That order you see out there is not there because it's there. It is there because it expresses God's glory. And there was one morning, and there was one evening, and then there was one morning. Remember when I asked you why evening and morning? Why evening and morning? Why not one morning and one evening? There was one evening. He starts with the evening and then the morning. Can you tell me where evening and morning may appear based on the context that I gave you about the universe? Pardon? Because there's darkness and light. Yes, that's a poetic image, and it, it applies. Yes, but why the crucifixion and resurrection? Why there was evening and morning? Well, for one thing, for one thing, how did the Jews account for a day? 
Yeah, no, the text was written this way because the liturgy guides it. Evening prayers, morning prayers. Okay? Evening prayers and morning prayers. So the structure is also liturgical. I don't have more to say about that. I'll come back to it. Just keep that in mind. I'll come back and give you specifically more details about it. But it is the liturgy that is in the back of the mind. It's an author who's telling his people, look, you know this liturgy, this boring Jewish liturgy, you're going to the temple all these days we lost right now because we're stuck in Babylon? Did you know that it also regulates the universe? It, cre- it, it is how the universe was created. It has a dimension that's so much bigger than ever, anything you, you thought about. And it's still true today. The liturgy right, is essentially the cosmic oxygen of this universe. The, uh, the universe breathes because there is liturgy. One thing I want to point out to you as far as this uh, particular passage goes, uh, God separated the light from the darkness. St. Augustine po- asked this question, why is it that it doesn't say at the end of verse 4, and God saw that it was good? And it doesn't even say it at the end of verse 5, as a, for that matter. Why is it that it doesn't say after God separated the light from the darkness that God said it was good? And St. Augustine answers, it's an interesting answer I'm bringing to your attention, is that he saw also in the separation of the light from the darkness, the primordial uh, angelic fight that separated the angels from the demons. So he looked at it not only in terms of its physical dimension, but also in that initial battle between the good angels and the bad angels when, when uh, Satan fell. You, 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 you all know, you should know, that the angels, like us, have a beginning. They were created. They're creatures. Right? They have a beginning like us, and they have no end like us. Right? And they were created before us. There are our elder brothers. They were created before us. And they, had their, they also had to pass a test. Right? And then some did and some didn't. So St. Augustine sees in this verse also the separation between the angelic powers, the good one and the bad one. Now, the first thing that happens is that God separates light from darkness. Then God separates waters above from waters below. It is again viewed as a process of ordering. A process of bringing order out of chaos. Before this, the firmament and the deep were all in sort of a chaotic jumble. And now God is separating the two. Waters doesn't necessarily mean water as the liquid. It also means all that is not firm, not solid. Right? All that is opposed to order, so to speak. And God is separating the two. And therefore bringing order in His creation. And God made the firmament and separated the waters, waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. The firmament was seen in, in the ancient, as the regulator for the ancient uh, cultures, the firmament that is effectively the horizon. To them, it wasn't just a point of view, it was a physical thing. That firmament effectively regulated moisture and regulated temperature. All right? So they see it as, again, a creative 
act of God to regulate the, his house. It's like almost, you know, colloquially you might think God just plugged in a thermostat. Right? So it's order that is emerging out of chaos in a very rational process. It's a very rational process. And God called the firmament heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, a second day. So, you see this process. Creation, ordering, naming. In this order. Creation, light was created. Then there's a separation between the two, and then there is naming. And it repeats again. Naming is always what? A sign of appropriation. It's a sign that something belongs to you. It's a trademark, so to speak. God is saying, these things that I'm creating are mine. I am the one who names them. It's something He shares with us. Right? We can name our children. We can name our, the animals. We can name our homes. We can name a lot of things. Because God gave us that ability to do so. And it's interesting that when you move into fascist regime or you move into a prison, what do they do? They take your name away and they give you what? A number. It's a dehumanizing process. It's taking something that is profoundly humane from you. And everybody suffers from it. Everybody suffers from it when you're a number. We use that expression, just a number. And God called the, the firmament heaven, and there was an evening, and there was morning a second day. All right. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Again, another separation now. You see the orderly process. First, light and darkness. Then the firmament is created in separation from waters below and waters above. There's still water all over the place. Now the third separation water, and land. What is the purpose of all of this? Why is God going through all this trouble to create all that? Why is He doing all this? Because He needs a new house? You know, real estate in heaven is so expensive, He just can't afford it anymore. He's just creating a new house for Himself. What is He doing? He is building a house for His children. You know, in, 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 in Lebanon, and I don't know about other countries, it is very, it's habitual for fathers to build a building which has apartments, flats, one for every kid. I know many who do that. My, two of my uncles did that. I have a friend whose father did exactly that. It's a common thing. We build a house for our children. Okay. In many cases, the dream of a father is to have what? His children living around him. If you don't believe me, you just have to watch my big fat Greek wedding. You'll see what I mean. But in that movie, it was telling that what did he give them at the end? A house. Right next to his. And Windex. That's a different story. So, that is what God is doing. He's preparing... This whole cosmos, this whole temple for His children. For us. You know what? What He's doing back then, He still wants to do today. God doesn't change. 
he still wants to do today for each one of us. That's his goal. That's his intent. That's what he wants. And so after that ordering, the creation, the separation, there is naming again. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were, were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Notice that for the ancient, only dry land is earth, not the whole planet. Okay? So when they say the earth, they really mean that part which is completely ordered. And eventually for the Jews, for the Israelites, it will become the land, not just earth, right? The land. And God... And God saw that it was good. So again, this, this sort of majestic repetition that throughout creation, God is effectively blessing it with His approval. This declaration of goodness is a blessing on God's part for His creation. Right? And now He says something that is rather interesting. And God say, saw that it was... Let, and then God said, verse 11, Let the earth put forth vegetations. Vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind upon the earth and it was so this is interesting because here God is not saying let plants um, sprout or let trees be created he doesn't say any of this he effectively imbues earth with the ability to bring forth these things And he does not name all of them. God does not go through the process of naming these vegetations. You notice? He just says, I am now allowing earth to have the capacity to bring forth all of this. So therefore, earth, when earth was created, it had a teleological, teleological, if you will, a logic to the end, towards the end, towards its stated end of bringing forth life. That is built into earth. Doesn't say that of light. Doesn't say that of the day and the night. Doesn't say that of the waters. It says it of earth. So any any idea that somehow God did a special creation across the board falls right here on this verse. He doesn't. He gives earth the power to bring forth all his creation. And he just let it be. And he sees that this is a good thing. So effectively, right there, we see already God's intent. He's not intent on on creating everything himself. He wants his creation to participate in his creative act. He gives his creation a part of his power because he wants to share. He wants to share. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now this business of kind here must be again understood within the concept of order. What it's saying is that it's an ordered creation. There is no disorder in there. Each plant brings forth seeds according to its nature. Properly. All right? Creation is ordered. There is no intent in that passage by that author to, 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 to simply, to, I mean, to think biologically. 
as if trying to define all the species. That's not what he's trying to say. The context doesn't even support that. What he's saying is that God imbued earth with the ability to create. Earth did not fall back into chaos. Earth created orderly. Predictably. In a manner that we can understand because it does it logically. So that in the laws of nature, right, the voice of God could be heard. That's the intent here behind this business of kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning a third day. So, what, what we've seen here is effectively in this orderly process of creation, God has an ultimate vision of what that temple, the universe, would look like. But his intent is not to do it all by himself. He's not building the whole house by himself. He begins it, brings out, brings out light, he brings out the firmament, separation of the waters. He brings out land and then imbues land with the ability to bring forth things. Now, and then he's gonna, we're going to see that he's continued to spreading life all, in, all around the land with one purpose in mind, preparing all of this for his masterpiece, which is man. God is bringing forth, is building a house for His children. What is the important lesson here for all of us? Especially for those who are in thinking about getting married. Oftentimes, unfortunately, we fall to the materialistic temptation to think, all right, and it's, it is, it, it's a misreading of Scripture, by the way. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get me, get me a career. I'm going to make lots of money. Once I paid off all my debts and got my car, and I've traveled the world because I really need to travel to be educated. I'm not really sure this works this way, but that's a different story. Once I've done all the travel I want to do, then I'm going to get married. Oh, before that, I'm going to get the house, of course. And I have it, I'm going to have the right furniture in it. It's going to look perfect. Then I'll get me the wife. And then two to three years later, we'll think about having a kid. Okay. That's not the way God did it. God didn't finish the house before he created Adam. He's not intent on you to go and build yourself a materialistic temple and then tell him we're ready now. What, he, what is your house? How do you complete your house? Your house, your home, shall be what? A house of prayer. That's when you complete your house. When it is a house of prayer. My house shall be called a house of prayer. That's how you complete your house. Don't be afraid to be married even though you may not have all the means. Don't be afraid of this. God will be with you. If you're faithful to Him, He will lead you. He will guide you. 
Don't find yourself in a seven-year engagement relationship. It drives me nuts. What are you doing? You need seven years to find out if you love a woman, or she needs seven years to find out if she loves you? My house shall be called a house of prayer. Trust in the Lord. He will surely guide you, and He will build your house. David went to God and said, I want to build you a house. I mean, after all, I'm living in this big palace, and you're in a tent. It makes no sense. And God said, no, I will build you a house. Well, I have a house. No, no. What he meant was a dynasty. Your royal line shall be secure forever. Imagine that. David thought, I already made it. I got a big palace. I'm in Jerusalem. I'm happy. I'm a happy camper. I got it. God, I need to build you. No. I am going to make your dynasty sure forever. What he says to David, he says to you. He says to you. When you tell him, I'm going to build you a house. What is this house you want to build him? It's your family. If you're going to wait until you've built everything on your own, God, I don't need you. Thank you very much. Oh, now, by the way, I'm ready. Send me a kid. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't live like pagans. Believe that God is with you. Plan appropriately. Be wise, but don't be afraid. That's the true Christian. That's how we live as Christians. Be not afraid. We have some time for questions. Yes. In the case of the baptism, the Spirit appeared as a dove. There was no overshadowing. And in the case of Pentecost, the Spirit did not overshadow them. He appeared as tongues of fire. The act of overshadowing, of completely covering, occurs three times. Yes. The question is, is there a Christological aspect to let there be light? The obvious answer is absolutely yes, there is. I had spoken about it a little bit earlier in the beginning of the, of, the, of the study, but I could pull that Christological aspect every single time. I'm trying to focus mostly on the literal sense, but absolutely, absolutely. Yes. To them, the firmament was the point of separation between the heavens and the plane of earth. And its purpose for them was the regulation of humidity and temperature. They thought of it as a physical separation. It wasn't just a horizon, the way we understand it. Yes. Yeah, wasteland is not a good translation. All right? Just to let you know, because precisely, it has the idea of waste. Something being wasted. Well, obviously, nothing is being wasted, because there's nobody around to waste anything. Right? So that's why I don't really like that translation. I prefer the one that says... Uh, the earth was without form and void. Yes. So the question is, does it have anything to do with evil and bringing us out of, in, 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 bringing us to the light, which is goodness? It does on the moral plane. It does when we look at it in a spiritual reading, which is either Christologically, Christ being the light of the world, bringing us out of darkness, anagogically, anagogically when we look at it from the church, or the church also being the house of God, where the light is, Morally, in our baptism. Absolutely. But the literal sense has no evil in it. Why? Because evil doesn't yet exist. Right? The whole point of this text is to say precisely that creation was good. 
from beginning to end. Fundamentally, creation is good. Right? So there is no evil implied in creation intrinsically. Evil entered the world after the fall. But it's not in the literal sense that we see it. Neither the fathers nor the Jewish rabbis looked at it this way. Evil entered from the devil. Right? When, the, when the, the devil, Satan, rebelled, evil entered the world. So the, the, the angels, some of the, the fallen angels are the source of evil in a fundamental sense. Yes. Um, yes, you could argue that the rich man doesn't have a name because uh, he's in hell. But that would be for a different reason, really. I mean, yes, you, you're right. In hell, you're nameless, basically. You lose your name. Yes. No, what I'm, you're right. The question is, when God said, this is my beloved son, is that audible? Yes, it was audible. The point is that all these statements about God saying are fundamentally the way we try to understand how God acts. In other words, it's a human perception of how God is acting. But God can't say because God is a spirit. There's no vocal cords to say. But we are trying to understand what it means for God to think. I mean, we don't understand that. The way God thinks is not the way we think. Right? We're trying to understand how God takes action. Well, we can't even begin to understand that. Because the way He takes action is completely different from the way we, we take action. So the best we can do is to bring it to a plane, to a level that we understand. But we always have to keep a loose hand on this. This is not God speaking. Right? It's just an anthropomorphism. Yes, it's God will use patterns of thought, will communicate with us the way we, can, we are able to communicate. He's condescending to our level. But in himself, he doesn't use that mode. If you look at the way the Trinity, I mean, if you look, if you could look at the way the Holy Trinity communicates, it's not at all in this mode. It's a mode that is altogether different, divine, that is wholly incomprehensible to us. Yes. So the question is, wasn't the word was God said? Well, yes, but you see, the problem is, I say something, and that is wholly inappropriate to God saying something. When I speak, all that comes out of me are human concepts. When God say, what comes out of God is God. How can we even begin to understand that mode of communication? In other words, there is no difference between what God is saying and who God is. There's a big difference between what I'm saying and who I am. I can say I'm Superman. Right. But whatever God say is God. It's like if I speak, a human comes out of me. Can you even, not only human, it's me. I say something and it's me. We can't even begin to understand that mode of communication. It's beyond our grasp. Right, so effectively, the Trinity is beyond our grasp. We always have to keep that in mind. The Bible is not describing to us how God acts when God is only with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible is a book of love written by the Holy Trinity for us to guide us along the path. Again, I go back to my example. A kid comes to you and says, Could you? he's six years old. Explain to me, please, please the theory of relativity. And you then open a book of math, and you'll, you think he's going to even grasp what you're going to begin to try to explain to him? 
if you use the equations? No, it's beyond his grasp. So what do you do? You woo, bring your way down to a level that he can kind of understand a little bit out of it. That's what God is doing. Keep always that in mind. God is the unknowable, is the one who's completely different. God is utterly different, utterly holy, utterly beyond our grasp. There's no way we can grasp God. Even when the Son was among us, what did Philip say? Show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied. Haven't been with you three years, Philip. Did you still ask me to show you the Father? I mean, those are the apostles. And they were having trouble understanding. How could we understand? So remember this. The fact that God condescends to our level. God comes down and God talks to us as if He is one of us. Doesn't mean that we have the right to treat Him like one of us. Alright? The beginning, uh, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Always remember that. It is the filial fear. The fear of one who truly recognizes, whoa, what God is and who I am. Right? Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Remember, we're not talking about apparitions. We're talking about ghosts. Very specifically. I did not talk about apparitions in general. No, there are definitely apparitions which are willed by God. So Fatima, Lourdes are are Marian apparitions. Our Lady appears. But when somebody says, I saw a ghost, right? typically it's either a man-made creation or it's demonic because God does not allow, in general, the dead to come back and haunt us or talk to us. It isn't part of His plan. Why? Because when you die, you're consigned to hell or to heaven. If you're in hell, you lose any right you have over the created order. If you're in heaven, you will only do God's will. And your apparition is always meaningful and has a point. And typically, it is those saints that the church prays to the altar because God will not do something outside the authority of His church. So therefore, when a church declares a man or a woman a saint, you will notice that effectively it is these people who come to us from God. We can trust them because we know infallibly that they are in heaven. God is not about to deceive us. All right? Any other question? Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.